Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're curious. We want to discuss, we want to challenge popular conceptions, we want to think critically, examine independently, and most of all, we crave nuance. Each episode, we'll interview a different guest, all interesting and original people who strive to break boundaries. We'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, sports, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? We want to create a platform where people share with us their stories, insights, creations, and visions. We want to create a space where people are free to question, discuss, and reach their own conclusions. We have no talking points, no script, and no agenda. We only want to reach a deeper, nuanced understanding of our existence. Join us on our journey as we explore, think, debate, discuss, and perhaps most importantly, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but, but with a J for Jewish? Yeah, yeah, they get it, man. Let's just start. Welcome to Juanced. This is our very first episode. Today we are joined by Rabbi Uri Pilichowski. So we're sitting here in the Jewish settlement of Mitzpeh Yericho. Uh, we drove up. It is desert, straight up desert, rolling hills, nothing but sand. Really, you could say that. Um, we're close to the larger settlement of Ma'ala Dumim. Uh, that's about a 30-minute drive past Jerusalem. And in the distance uh, from the balcony of Rabbi Uri Pilchowski's house, you can see the Palestinian city of Jericho. And if you look further up at night, you can actually see Amman, Jordan. So for reference, you can check out the map that will be on the show notes on the website. And we're recording this on uh, June 29th. And this is an important date. So why is it an important date? As of July 1st, Israel is expected to announce the annexation slash application of sovereignty to the Jewish settlement in the West Bank, or as they're called where we're sitting, Judea and Samaria. So uh, if you noticed, I'm already using alternative terminology, and that's because the very words you use when discussing this subject already have a lot of ideological and political connotations. Uh, We'll jump back and forth, but just be aware of that. Um, So this area, this conflict, obviously long and complicated history, Uh, Dating back to biblical times, we're going to skip over all of that. If you're really into that, we can get into it in the future or just pick up a history book. But what's important now for the listeners to know, from 1948, when Israel declared independence, and until 1967, this area was taken over and controlled by Jordan. Israel took over in 1967, the Six-Day War, and since then, Israel has controlled the area through uh, a military occupation that is largely disputed, uh, controversial one throughout the world. There are around two and a half million Palestinians that live here and just over half a million uh, Israelis, Israeli Jewish settlers. Uh, They often get a bad rap in the world. Um, The vast majority live in a few concentrated blocks that are near what's known as the Green Line or the 1948 Armistice Line. So uh, the very, very short story before we get to our guest here is after a few failed attempts at negotiating a two-state solution or or a peace solution, and we're not even going to get to who's at fault now, uh, it's a whole complicated story, and it's not the point of this episode. Um, but it would have resulted in a Palestinian state alongside Israel in most of the West Bank and Gaza. Um, in light of these failed attempts, the current Israeli government, which we'll point out is a right-wing government that's been in power for about the past decade, has been touting taking unilateral action and extending Israeli sovereignty to those areas that are highly populated by Israelis and that have few Palestinians living in them. 
Uh, so the Israeli right, which is now backed by, uh, supported by the, the Trump administration, the Trump White House, uh, who recently put forth a peace plan. And if both sides were to agree to it, it would offer a Palestinian state on about 70% of the West Bank, all of Gaza, and some land swaps uh, in southern Israel, uh, with Israel getting to keep the areas on which settlements are currently built. Um, so this plan was accepted as the basis for negotiations by the current government, by uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and alternate Prime Minister uh, Gantz. And the Palestinians are refusing to engage with the plan, and frankly, they're refusing to engage with the White House since the uh, Trump administration recognized Jerusalem a couple of years ago as Israel's capital and moved the embassy. So as of July, we're expecting some kind of announcement from the Israeli government in Jerusalem about this extension of sovereignty or annexation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we don't know, but we have good guesses as to what can happen. And so far, Israeli society is split on this issue. Uh, many around the world and the region predictably are condemning the possibility of this. We're, of course, hearing uh, threats of all sorts of measures and responses. Benny, I'll be honest here. Um, I've looked and read and challenged myself to be convinced that this is a good idea, okay? Um, this episode and, and what we're going to talk about is not my politics or your politics. Um, we haven't been convinced that this is a good idea. And so we're here uh, with our guest, Rabbi Uri Pilachowski, who is going to uh, convince us. How are you doing, Uri? Good. How are you? Thank you very much for having me, especially on your first uh, podcast. Congratulations, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's our honor, and we appreciate being hosted in your amazing home. We're sitting here in uh, kind of the nerdiest, Jewiest man cave one could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are surrounded by bottles of scotch and cigars, but also by volumes of uh, Jewish uh, uh, and rabbinic wisdom and literature. This is uh, a perfect man cave. This is a perfect man cave. <laughs> it's very cool. It's very cool and possibly the coolest bathroom uh, anyone can imagine. Uh, we'll put up some pictures of that on the uh, website as well uh, for everyone to see. Um, so Uri, uh, we'll briefly introduce you. Uh, I would describe him as modern Orthodox, but he'll talk about how he sees himself. How, how do you see yourself? I'm a Jew. He's a, I'm a Jew. Jew. I grow and I try to help other people grow. I love it. Good times. Uh, I love it. Uri grew up in New Jersey, uh, spent time as a rabbi in Beverly Hills, um, and later in Boca Raton, Florida, and uh, made Aliyah six years ago. Uh, yeah. With his wife, Eliza, who's actually the mayor of this town. She is. And uh, they're six awesome kids. I got to meet them uh, recently. Teaches high school and post-high school yeshiva students. Uh, and he's very active in uh, both youth engagement. And what's really cool is he's um, made quite a name for himself. I'm saying this. He didn't tell me this. As uh, um, an active in uh, political activism in the U.S., working on promoting U.S.-Israel relations, uh, frequently takes teen uh, groups through APAC to Congress, uh, to the White House, uh, you've been to the White House a few times yourself, is that right? Yeah, more, more times than I can count probably by now, yeah. That's awesome. We'll, we'll talk about all that. Uh, founded and directed a youth program, If Not Us, and he brings uh, groups to his, uh, the Pilachowski Palace, and we'll, we'll give you a plug here, come out here, um, get to experience um, this area, um, and, and get to experience the story from, from a side that's often maligned outside of Israel, um, and, and that's the story of the settlers who live in Yudav Shomron or Judea and Samaria. Um, and he writes, or he writes, and he speaks. He's uh, got three books. You're working on a new book now? I am working on an, uh, three different books now. Three yeah. different books. Okay. okay. Well, what's, uh, what kind of books? Uh, one is a story book, um, a story about two teenagers here, Moshe and Muhammad, who are uh, two teenagers live in this area, and uh, happen to meet um, on, as they both uh, 
go on their own separate walks and meet in the middle of the desert and strike up conversations about the uh, the conflict. So you get to hear the conflict from both their sides. Another book is a uh, question and answer book, uh, questions that I have from students on uh, on all range of topics, Torah topics, Israel topics. Uh, so those are the two main books that I'm working on now. And then I'd like to write a book uh, in the future on the values that America and Israel share. Um, a lot of it has been written about the history of the relationship, but nobody's really written on the values of our country. So I'd like to uh, talk about my two countries and the values that they share. That's awesome. Yeah, we often hear about uh, Judeo-Christian values that are the heart of this relationship. I speak about it a lot when I speak to groups. Um, so that and that's something that I think is missing maybe in today's uh, discourse when we talk about this issue. Uh, you're very active on social media. You tweet under the handle, The Rational Settler. Rational Settler. I love yeah. it. I love it. And and you really are. And that's uh, one of the things, uh, you know, that, that I always enjoy speaking with you and reading your articles because you have your viewpoints and, and you, you have your political views and you have your religious views um, and, you know, unabashedly. Um, but you're always willing to discuss. You, you you're not quick to judge people. Uh, you want to listen, uh, you want to try to convince through the logic of your argument and not by saying, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, uh, etc. Um, you know, so so let's get into this. Uh, why are we here today talking to you? Um, so I think <laughs> the reason why you're here, if I can, uh, is because you have an appreciation of nuance. And in today's, uh, today's time, uh, we have a lot of uh, issues, especially extending sovereignty out here to this land, uh, which tends to not be, uh, nuance doesn't enter, interject itself into the conversation so easily, especially by the people here. Uh, and I think that, uh, that those of us that do practice nuance and are able to look at a plan and look at, uh, look at different things and, and be able to discuss its positives and negatives in an honest fashion uh, is something that's, uh, that's, that should be more widespread and isn't, unfortunately. So I think that's why you're here. I assume so. I also made you chicken wings, so maybe that's why. That's right. And for the it depends what kind of what, what sauce is it in? Like sauce? A rub no, no, no. no. Yeah, we don't discuss that. That's a secret. It's sauce. A, it's it's a secret. Secret of its pericho. I actually want to like take a step back for a second and try to just understand because as Dan and I are both people that that made Aliyah to Israel, uh, you know, I think I was 16 years ago. Dan was what 15? Yeah, just after you. Just after me. Uh, what you were last in Boca or California? I was in Boca. Yeah. You're in Boca. Where where in Boca? Was it like the uh, is it Boca Raton Synagogue? Um, is a synagogue? Was it a rabbi yet? What? That's an original name. Rabbi right, Boca. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Boca Raton Synagogue uh, under uh, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, who is uh, just an amazing, amazing rabbi, leading rabbi in America. Um, and I was at the Sheck Hill Community School, where I still teach every single day uh, via Zoom before Corona. I was teaching there on uh, on Zoom, Skype first, and then Zoom. So life didn't really change that much in that regard with uh, with the Zoom. Um, no, no, during Corona, no, except my students going. are now on Zoom. Right. They used to be in a classroom. So what, what made you six years ago come to come to Israel, and, and like why Mitzpah uh, Yericho? So we actually lived here for eight years after high school. We, uh, we both came here for a gap year and then stayed. Um, went back to America, but only because we felt that if we built our reputations up in America, we'd be able to do better professionally here in terms mm -hmm. of teaching which worked out perfectly. We had a 10-year plan. After 10 years, we came back. So after 10 years, we had an amazing job offer at Yeshiva Takotel, which is uh, in the old city. Right. Um, and that, that's what brought me back, the timing-wise. But this is home. Um, it's home. We actually came during Cast Lead. And uh, for a weird, uh, weird confluence of events, we actually became very well-known um, in the media because we found Tefillin in a store in Alabama. <laughs> and then, uh, so that led to a couple hundred media interviews. Uh, and then when they found out in each media interview, I'd talk about how I was moving in a month to Israel when the war broke out. So then uh, that led to another string of interviews. And 
uh, one of the interviews would always ask, why are you moving to Israel in the midst of a war? And I said, because it's home and you're always safest at home. Okay, so you're moving to Israel. I mean, I, I live in Rehovot. It's a city. Benny lives in Gadara. Okay, it's a little, a little less of a city, but you moved out to the middle of the desert. It's a settlement, right? We hear all the time about uh, it's dangerous, it's distant. What, what brings you out here? It's funny because when people ask me that, I say, well, why would you want to live in Gadara and Rehovot? It's, uh, you know, it's crowded. It's a city. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, real estate prices are so high. You know, I don't know why anybody would want to be there. Um, I, I look at, I mean, the, people can't see it here, but the, the view is astounding. Uh, we came out here. We actually n- never heard of Mitzvah Richo. Um, I had actually been here when I was 11 years old on my first trip to Israel. My parents told me about it afterwards. We had gone down to the Dead Sea, and a tour guide had taken us on the way back. Um, and so, would you like to see a brand new settlement? So this place is only ten years old. We have pictures oh, wow. of that trip. So I had actually been here, but obviously didn't remember from when I was a ten year old. And uh, we looked on the Nefesh Benefesh website, and they had like this weird questionnaire that they would ask you, like uh, you know, ten to fifteen questions about what you're looking for, and then through tags, it would suggest it's supposed to give you like six or seven different uh, types of uh, suggestions of cities. And the only one they threw out was Mitzvah Richo, which we had never heard of. So we're like, okay, but it probably pays to look at it. If uh, yeah, and we came out here. Uh, we got. We love the school, and then we looked at the view here, and we were just like, "This place is amazing." Um, it's about half the cost of probably where you guys live, yeah, sure. and Maybe uh, right, twenty minutes to uh, Yerushalayim. And we've never heard of this thing that you guys have called traffic. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and just just so people know, Nefesh Benefesh is an organization that helps uh, that helps Jews in the United States uh, make Aliyah, move here, uh, immigrate here, and and set up their lives. Yeah. So okay, let's jump a couple days, July first. What what's supposed to happen here? What's Israel planning on doing? So and no one knows, um, <laughs> right? So no one knows. It, it, it's funny because July first has taken on this like mystical, uh, right. you know, sort of meaning. Um, in the in the coalition agreement between Bibi Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, we can make it official: Likud and Blue and White, although right. it's not. Um, between the two of them, they wrote down that nothing could happen before July first. Well, so, well, that's the date that the Americans set, uh, isn't is, it? That the I Americans set that they have to wait till July to. I, I don't know started. if it was official. Okay. Okay, I don't know if it was official. But they wrote July 1st. Nothing could happen before July 1st. So then all of a sudden, July 1st became, instead of the starting date, became the deadline. Uh, but it was, never was a deadline. So that's when the first, like, uh, you know, debates can happen in the Knesset okay. uh, for a plan. So what's going to happen on July 1st? I assume absolutely nothing will happen on July 1st. Um, what's uh, going to start happening on July right, 1st? Right, so I think that discussions, look, it, it should be, what should happen on July 1st is we should have sovereignty extended to 30% of Yudav Shomor, Judea and Samaria, um, including the Jordan Valley, and uh, and we should then start the clock on the Palestinians that they have four years to then come to negotiate with us the start of their own state. Um, that's what should happen on July 1st. We should have massive parties out here. It should be a celebratory day, one of the greatest days in Jewish history, um, but it won't. It, that's not going to happen on July 1st. On July 1st, what will happen is absolutely nothing will happen. And uh, then the debates will happen of how much we should really extend sovereignty to, whether it should be large cities, small cities, far out places, close places, anybody's guess at this point. And of course, the uh, four-year clock that you mentioned has to do directly with the the vision of the Trump peace plan. Right. That's within the Trump peace plan. Correct. So what is your vision? What would you like to see happen? On July 1st? In general. Let's, oh, in general? Yeah. Oh, look, ideally, dreaming-wise here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dream would be Your that... Your personal vision. My personal... Well, okay, so I want to make sure... There's a difference between personal vision and personal dream. This is completely impractical and won't happen. Um, but if you're asking me, like, if I could dream, what yeah, would yeah, I would want to happen? Let's start with the dream. Let's dream start out. with the dream, and then we'll, and then we'll ruin it and get exactly. pessimistic <laughs> afterwards. The, uh, the dream would be that we extend uh, 
We extend sovereignty to the entire Judea and Samaria, um, completely take it over under Israeli rule, and grant equal rights, including voting rights, to the Palestinian, huh. my Palestinian neighbors out here um, who become Arab Israelis, just like we have uh, 20% of the country is already Arab Israelis, and which then begs the question, wait a minute, hold on a second, then we're going to lose the, gen- the Jewish and democratic nature of the state. Right? Yeah, you yeah, can that's always, our job to ask the questions. Right, yeah, sorry, sorry, <laughs> so, What's the hell so, about, man? It's all right. Sorry. So, uh, so, so, yeah, you can only, uh, J Street's famous thing, you can only have two of three. You can either have, right, there's three things right. you could have. You could have... Um, a Jewish state, a democratic state, and a state from be- from the river to the sea. But you cannot have all three. I disagree. I think we can have all three. Well, hang on. Let's be fair. It's not just J Street. I mean, the Israeli left and center have been saying this. Okay, for, fine. So you and and I'll be, I'll be perfectly honest. Center, right? I, I consider myself a centrist. Whatever that means, I say this myself. I'm not capable of envisioning something else. So, so again, we're talking about visions and dreams here. We're not talking okay, about... Okay, so, so let, me, let me justify my dream here. Yeah. In 1948... If you had told the people in 1948 that we're going to have 20% of the country are going to be Israeli Arabs, mm. um, and they will be productive members of society mm-hmm. who will not need um, Israeli soldiers surrounding them at all times to make sure that they don't commit terrorist attacks, at, at, and they're not trying to undermine the state. And not only that, we're going to put representation inside the Knesset. Right. Wh- which is how get- it is now. And I'm saying, if you had told that to Jews in 1948, they would have said, you're absolutely crazy. You're going to lose the Jewish sta- nature of the state or the democratic nature of the state, <laughs> or something's going to go. Right, you're gonna have constant terror here. These people are gonna be uh, are gonna be a thorn in your side forever. And lo and behold, 72 years later, right? So these people are are equal citizens to us. Now we have a big problem that we don't treat them as equal citizens. Not yeah. on policy, we have a seri- like serious racism problems here. Uh, but the, every democracy has that, and the key is whether we're working on it or not. And I believe we are. But no one would have said that this is a realistic dream that you could have members of uh, Arab members of society that are contributing members of society and people that we appreciate. And yet here we are, we have it. So the same arguments, every single argument that you have that comes to sovereignty that we're going to discuss today can be applied back to 1948. So the Zionist dream is a dream of creating a democratic Jewish state that's productive, that the world sees as a light onto the nations. So I believe that we can turn to our Palestinian neighbors here, who are a large part recognizing this right now, that they do better as Israeli citizens, and they're not going to try to undermine the Israeli state and not try to take out the Jewish nature of the state, because they're going to realize that the the benefits that they have, that their Arab neighbors and countries surrounding them here, have only come because... They're in a Jewish state. You know, I'm going to challenge you in that because I think they fully appreciate they're in a democratic state and they realize the benefits of living in a, in a rule of law, democratic society. They would love nothing more than to cancel the Jewish, the official Jewish element of the state. And if they were, right now they're 20%, so they can't do it. But if they're 50, 60% of the country, what's, what's to stop them from voting out uh, the Jewish part of the state? If we can create a state that they appreciate that does well enough for them, that's what will stop them. And that's our responsibility. We have, we'll have nobody to blame but ourselves. How horrible is it that we sit there and we say, we can't create something good enough for them to the extent where we can be confident that they won't want to vote us out of power? How horrible is that, right? We should be able to do that. That's the Zionist dream. That's what Judaism is all about. That's what we are as a people, right? You asked me to be passionate here, so now I'm going to be passionate. Right? That's, who, that's who we are as a people. We're people that are supposed to be giving. We're supposed to be merciful. We're supposed to be loving of our neighbors. We can do that. So we like, can do that. So like Dan's like representing the legal perspective of this. And I'm just going to go from like the, I'm, I'm like the, the tachlis, like the, the bottom line. I like living in a country like I have where we live, where you know, I look around me and uh, you know, Israel is a majority Jewish state where the majority is a very clear majority. 
Now we fast forward to a time where we're talking about 60-40 or 50-50, even if we're able to save in, in, in enshrine in law uh, you know, the, the, the Jewish part of the Jewish state, I'm now still living in a country that's much more, uh, I, I would say, you know, much more diverse in terms, of its, in terms of its breakdown in population, and that's obviously going to have an effect on the fabric of our cultural life here in this country. So what would, you know, what would one say to, to somebody, you know, who, 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 you know, kind of represents more of the centrist line that's concerned about, well, what happens if we do have one, we'll call it a binational state, even though it's a Jewish state in law, um, where, where that's now extremely different than what it is today? I'd ask, what's your problem with diversity? As we can grow from other cultures, right? So much of our, of our thought, right, if you look at the philosophical books here, are influenced by other, right? The Rambam was, uh, was, was influenced by Greek thought, right? And it wasn't a bad thing, right? And people burnt his books at first because they had sure. a closed mind, right? But then when they started to realize this doesn't contradict Judaism, we can accept the Rambam, we can accept Aristotle, we can accept, we can accept Arab thinkers, right? The Rambam quotes Arab thinkers all the time. The, the Arabs are not bad people. We can gain from them. There's nothing uh, wrong with them. So, so if I dig a little, a little deeper in here, really what we have at the, at, the, at the core of this is kind of just an understanding of what a Jewish state actually is. Okay. Uh, for, many, for many secular people, a Jewish state is a state where there's a majority or a clear majority of Jews. And I think for other people, and maybe, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe what, what's, some of what you're saying is, is that for, for many people and people that are directly... Uh, you know, part of what these plans might be, or people that live in this area of the country, a Jewish state is the is 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 the, you know a Jewish ideological state. We're living in the land of Israel is is what is important, and, and the more classically defined term of political Zionism uh, or revisionist Zionism, if you want to call it, or any of those strains of Zionism is is something of the past. And now we've evolved into an, an era where um, you know it doesn't make a difference per se what the makeup is of the of, of the Jewish state. The fact is, is that it's a state of Jewish values that's physically existing in the land of Israel. Um, so, so the, the ethnic character of the Jewish state, you're, we're talking about a, a different form of Zionism. Okay, I mean it depends. So this, the one, you know, I used to think of myself not as a Zionist because I never felt at home in Zionist thinking. And then Gil Troy has a great book called yeah. the, uh, the Zionist Ideas, and I found Zionist thinkers that I could connect to. And for the first time, this is only about a year or two ago, I finally called, started calling myself a Zionist. I didn't consider myself a Zionist because I looked at Zionism and said, this is not for me. Well, I don't I mean, believe the, in this. The classical, idea, uh, the, the classical idea and the founding of the country was that we need to be a country like all the countries. We need to have our own ethno-national state, uh, be respectful of minorities, etc. But we have to have our own place where we make the decisions, where we're not, uh, how, how has it been described, where Jews re-enter history as players and not just passive, you know, voices. I don't think I'm saying anything that contradicts okay. that. So th this sounds to me, um, you know, from my interactions with Israeli society, maybe I'm missing, missing something all these years, as a kind of a radical departure. Uh, do you know Very people? rational. A rational departure. <laughs> well, you're not the radical settler. Right, it's radical because it's rational, because everybody's so stuck in there, and it has to be this way, and they're not thinking outside the box. Do you, do you talk to people... Uh, here in this settlement and other settlements that feel similar? That no, of course not. Nobody thinks this way because nobody, nobody gets to this point. Because they're not rational. We know because they're fearful. They're fearful. Because we're it's so true. scared yeah, of the yeah. future. We're so scared of, of what might happen. When In this discussion of sovereignty, if we bring it back to the, to the sovereignty discussion, anybody that, show, that has any hesitation, it's all based on a fear of what might happen. Right. 
You know, unless of course you're you're anti, you know, the state of Israel, in which case you say, you know, this is just colonialism. You know, it is a moral problem or a legal problem. But other than that, everybody else's objections to this and everybody's hesitation is one of fear. I don't have this fear. So, so let's talk about these fears for a second, uh, because you know, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. We we have conjectures. Um, the, the full idea is to extend sovereignty to thirty percent, which which is what the Trump plan kind of stipulates. Um, but realistically, the kind of things that I'm reading uh, say that we might end up extending sovereignty only to a few of the more major settlement blocks, maybe a few percents to the kind of places maybe like Gush Etzion, that there's absolutely no discrepancy that in any kind of peace plan touted by you know any of the past presidents would remain in Israel. So we're going from there to all the way to 30%. What, what kind of things are, are you hearing here? Um, I don't think that's what will happen. I think what will happen is you'll have a major settlement block, either the Gush or, or Mali Adumim over here, and then you'll have some outlying places. Um, and to make the point of we're not just taking what everybody else said is going to be ours. So you think this is going to be like a statement move? I think there's going to be both. I think there's going to be the pragmatic, which is we're taking something that everybody agreed would be ours anyway, and, th- and any deal is what I mean. And then I think what we're going to have is the next level of something like a Chevron which is like a, you know, a big statement that we're extending our sovereignty to, to an outlying place. And you just want to explain to our uh, listeners uh, the issue with a place like Hebron and why that would be sensitive, why people are scared. You know, or Ofra, you can also bring yeah. that in. So, I mean, where is Hebron? Why is that such a big deal? Oh, you want me to say that? You were going to say well, yeah, Okay, no, yeah. Um, so Hebron is south of Jerusalem. Um, it's a city of uh, 400 Jews and 100,000 Palestinian Arabs. Um, and it's like the green zone in Baghdad almost when you enter right. it. Um, it's completely shut off to most Palestinians. Um, only very few Palestinians are allowed into the Jewish zone of, uh, of Hebron. Um, it's an incredibly violent and tense place. There are very few um, calm individuals on either side that have made the Hebron their home. Well, the settlers uh, that are considered amongst the most... Uh Active. Committed, we'll call it. <laughs> so, so, passionate. Right, passionate, active. And I know, I know we'll back say. in the army, I did some my best, duty. By some of my best friends. So, yeah. they, uh, so they are, right, so, that, so that's, that's Hebron. So um, the world looks at this and says, when you have a city of 400 versus 100,000, it probably makes sense to get rid of the 400. Right? That's, uh, that's how the world looks at Hebron. Um, so by extending sovereignty to that small green area, that uh, that would be called uh, the you know the, what we call the Jewish community of Hebron today. Uh, that's a huge statement that says that and now you we're can here see permanently. Something realistically, or, or let's jump down from the vision. Uh, realistically, you can see something like this happening. I think that's what will happen. Okay, and, and what, wait, what do you think is more volatile in terms of the reaction of the world? Which I which think, of those? I think, those stages I think the world doesn't get it. I think the world looks at this. They don't understand the difference between Mali and Hebron unless you're some like a wonk guy in uh, in the EU. You know, they, they don't get no one it. Knows. But I mean, let's talk about the possible reactions that you hear. You know, uh, Israeli security, former Israeli security officials, and and policy experts in Washington and throughout Europe, etc., are warning of all sorts of repercussions. So, what kind of things? Who's warning? What kind of things are they warning about? So what you have is, yeah, yeah, I laugh because we've discussed this before, right. but uh, I'm going to totally blow this off and you're going to tell me that I'm wrong. But the, uh, but I think... You're wrong. Right. <laughs> okay, good. So we can start there. Uh, but first, of all, first of all, you're wrong. wrong. Right. So, so the, uh, 
So I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. So you have former security officials who are warning of everything from a third intifada, um, which we've heard. We're probably a, up a to our... violent uprising. Right. We're, we're probably up to our eighth already based on former security officials warning us of, of uh, every, every time a Jew blows his nose, there's going to be another intifada here in this, uh, in this region. Um, to Jordan breaking its peace treaty and declaring war with us. To the EU sanctioning us to the point where no Israeli will be able to get on a plane without being arrested at The Hague. Um, all types of different things that could happen. Um, based on uh, based on doing this, um, I dismiss them because I think that they're not. None of them are going to happen. Um, the last couple of days, the Palestinian Authority has tried um, having rallies in Jericho. Jericho is about a ten minute drive from here. I'm looking at it at the window, so I keep motioning out the window to uh, to Jericho. Mm-hmm. Um, and the PAA has tried to have these uh, like very you know disturbing types of rallies. The pictures are of like nine guys all above seventy years old standing there with uh, scrawled signs that clearly they did not draw themselves. Are, are they at least wearing masks? They're not wearing their masks. Yeah. So they're not wearing their masks. Which uh, okay, they but they're so socially distant from each other. It doesn't make a difference because they're trying to spread them out to show they can't get rallies together. So there's not going to well, be why, violence. Why do you think that? Well, first of all, I, uh, I'll, I'll throw two things in here. I don't want to, you know, you're wrong, right? right. <laughs> I, th- I think the, the lessons of the past couple of years show us that, okay, we have to float. And I can say this as someone who used to do this for a living. Um, we have to raise the worst case scenarios because that's how states and, and security apparatuses prepare. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's a high likelihood they will happen. Okay, so just because there's, let's say, a 20% chance or a 30% chance that there won't be an uprising or there won't be an uptick in terrorism or, or that the uptick in terrorism will be manageable, okay, which is a horrible thing to say, but it is today. Because at the end of the day, right. uh, you know, those are lives that, that could be hurt. Um, that doesn't mean you can be dismissive of them, right? Uh, I think, I think there's, it, there's a difference between being dismissive and questioning whether we should go ahead with our plans. Mm because of these fears. So I don't think anybody ever dismisses terrorism. Every year they come out with a stat of, of how many terror attacks have been stopped um, you know, by the, secu- right. by the se- security services. It's always surprisingly high. Right, it's, it's an amazingly high, and yeah, it's, hundreds, it averages above three a day. Right. Um, so that means that there's three people a day in this area trying to commit acts of terror that are just because they're stopped. And then there's things that happen, we all know this, there are attacks that go through um, that, are, that happen every single day that don't make the news anymore because right. a stabbing just isn't that exciting anymore to make the news. So when you talk about an uptick of terror, no one's dismissing it. But it's a question of should we, should we stymie our own growth because of a fear of something might happen? And if you're talking about a massive movement of you know, the Palestinians coming out and, and having an intifada, then that might be something. But I dismiss mm. that possibility that that's not going to happen. What about if the Palestinian Authority... Okay, so the for people who are not familiar here, the Palestinian Authority, uh, the creation of the Oslo process in the 90s, manages the day-to-day affairs uh, of all the Palestinians in the West Bank. It used to be in Gaza, but that's not run by Hamas. So they're saying we might uh, collapse or disband as, as a either as a sign of uh, discontent or just because the pressure would be too high and they might collapse here. Uh, leave aside, will that happen, won't that happen? Um, I know you're not an expert on Palestinian affairs, but, I mean, that could be catastrophic for this area. If there, you know, if we have to, Israel has to come back in and start managing the lives of two and a half million Palestinians here. Yep, that would be, but it's not going to happen because um, Mahmoud Abbas is a professor by profession before he went into politics, and somewhere along the way, I'm in education, and I don't know how, I don't know any other educator that's done this, he's grown his personal wealth to a little over $200 million, and each of his sons are worth tens of, and rumors have it, hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, 
I don't know what kind of investments he has. I look around the area. There's no businesses making that type of money. So I don't know where Mahmoud Abbas got that money other than foreign aid, right? And the only way he gets foreign aid is, it, and he's embezzling this foreign aid, um, as all of his cronies. And the only way they have that foreign aid is if they have an authority that they can, you know, embezzle that money for and launder it through. Uh, so they'd be giving up a lot if they disbanded the Palestinian Authority so to make a bluffing. point. What? You think they're bluffing? I know they're bluffing. No. There's no way. Who's going to give up that much money? I don't know. Everybody listening should Google Mahmoud Abbas's house. He's the president of the Palestinian right. Authority. Go, yeah, Google his house and Google images and ask yourself if you would give that up to make a point. So, like, what are we going to do with the Palestinians that live there? What are we going to do with the Palestinians? So there's, there's Palestinians that are living in this, in this territory, perhaps. Um, the question is what happens, what happens with them? Are we... In in the plans, um, are are they becoming Israeli citizens? No, so there are. So this is this is a big misnomer, um, and I'm glad that you brought it up. There are no Palestinians that will be part of this plan. Mm. We are extending um, a sovereignty not as to an area in a map, but only where Jews are. Um, so Bibi Netanyahu made this point, um, and I've spoken to the Americans who also agree to this. So this is across the board; everybody agrees to this that Palestinians that are that are in this ne- next to me will not be included uh, and will remain under the Palestinian Authority, much like the what they call the enclave settlements, which are about 15 different settlements in the plan, which will be surrounded by Palestinians, will not become Palestinian I don't know, citizens, what the word is, but they'll remain Israeli citizens, even though they'll be surrounded by Palestinians. Does that make sense to you from a practical perspective of having to secure it and having to have borders and having to have roads and infrastructures? Does that really make sense to you? No, but we have Swiss cheese here already. Right, we have we have roads that go, we have tunnels that go. But on my way here, I have to I take a tunnel under under Isawiya and under uh, under Shuafat so that uh, so I don't have rocks thrown at me. Right, so those are uh, neighborhoods, Arab neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. Right, so to get to get at to get out of Jerusalem, I have to go east, and that's where I'm going. So I have to so instead of driving through those neighborhoods, we built entire tunnels to to circumvent that right. so people could go under. So. We already have this. That's life out here. Is you know a bunch of uh, jigsaw pieces. And, and you're okay with that? Yeah, it's reality. I mean, does this, does this, you know... I no, 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 I, I want to stop. I'm sorry. Let me go back one step. No, I'm not okay with it. I would much <laughs> rather, course. I would much rather live peacefully. Of but course. if I, in absence of peace, then yes, that's what I have to, has to happen. So I think this is like a good point to go back to what I was talking, a good place to go back to what I was referring to before, which is, and here I kind of have to say, I really, I really do respect and appreciate your honesty and, and, and kind of the intellectual honesty of the perspective that you take versus I think a lot of what, what we typically hear from people that live... Um, in the territories or in, or, in, or in Judea and Samaria in terms of what their end game is with the Palestinians. Um, I think there are a lot of people out here who either they haven't thought of it that far or they aren't comfortable with the fact that, you know, it, their their desire to, to extend control over the territory brings them into uh, a, a place where they have to decide whether to uh, keep the Palestinians here or, or what they would say transfer them out. Who's um, talking about transfer? It, I think they're just talking about... Having oh, no, no, I got neighbors. That no, you know, there are people talking about transfer, <laughs> right. but I'm saying in government circles, the kind of... Uh, mm. Even the right-wing parties that are part of the government are not talking about transfer. No. I, but people that live here do. I mean, they, they, there's a lot of people here that would... And, and maybe it's just, like we were saying, there's vision and there's dream. And maybe in their dream, they're just like, well, you know, we, we should just get rid of the people that don't want us to be here. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a certain, so. like, uh, cognitive dissonance that, that exists out here. Where uh, where reality doesn't really play a role, 
So that's, uh, yeah, so it's very hard having a discussion with somebody are, whose reality isn't their baseline. Are but. there, I mean, earlier on, you, you referred to the fact that you're kind of a loner when it comes to, to this kind of a perspective, but clearly there are a lot of very rational people that live out here, and, if, and, it, and I would assume that it, it, it's essential to support your existence here to have people that are able to rationally argue and, and justify what you want to do, um, as opposed to sounding like you haven't thought it out so much. So I guess the question kind of becomes like, how do you engage in these conversations with your friends and neighbors that live here when, you know, with those people who may not feel this way? Do they dismiss you and what you're saying? Yeah, they dismiss me as liberal and, uh, and left wing, um, which is fascinating because I think everybody else in my life that knows me would consider me very right wing. Um, and to be known as the left wing person out here is, uh, is, is, is scary. Now, when you, um, say, when you say left wing, do they literally think like, you you are left wing like Israeli left wing or are they saying yeah, you're like uh, you're on the right but you're like on the left of the right? No, they think that like I'm totally don't I don't get it. I'm the I'm the American that doesn't understand um, life out here. Um, you know, I'm new here and I, th- I have like this uh, pie eye in the sky type, which I was when I got here. I was really like had no idea what was going on here and thought like oh, we just reach out to the Palestinians here. You guys wanted fascinating stories of uh, White House time, so I'll give you a fascinating oh, well, yeah, we'll yeah, pie in the sky type of uh, <laughs> type of thing. So I was offered by the Obama administration um, all, essentially a blank check. Uh, there's there are a lot of programs out here in Israel that com- that allow Arabs and Israelis to get along. Right. What does not exist is is a program that puts Israel as uh, settler children and Palestinian children together. That does not every kind of paradigm that people can imagine outside of Israel. Does uh, it, right? Doesn't uh, Roots have some sort of a program? Roots has. I've done programs with the Roots at best. I once brought like teenagers to Roots, so I brought teenagers, and I was sitting there with law school students who were like, "Well, this is our youth." I'm like, "No, it's, it's not your youth, and you know that, and you can't get your youth here for whatever reason." Uh, so, uh, so the idea was, I'm living in, a, in an area right here where there's a lot of empty space between me and Jericho. It's a 10-minute drive, but we're talking a lot of empty sand. So so with a blank check, you could build a sports facility here. Right. An amazing uh, soccer field. Everybody loves soccer. And we could do, like, once or twice a week, we could have, like, a soccer uh, a soccer thing for the kids, right? Pa- Palestinian children from Jericho, Israeli children, settlers from my town, and they'll meet in this place. We could secure it. We have all the money in the world. We could secure it, no problem. Uh, we could have a computer lab. They can, uh, you know, the, I'm not going to say which company, but a company offered, you know, to p- sponsor all the computer and the classes and everything and uh and we could do this great thing and i sat down with people from jericho and i sat down with people from my town and both said no way not a chance not gonna happen you know and like you're crazy for even thinking about this and i had to go back to the obama administration and say there's no one will do this you know it doesn't matter how much money we have no one's going to do this no one will send their kids when when you say you went back to the obama administration what, what was your role like, were you in an, in an a official teacher. capacity? I love saying this. I'm a teacher. I don't have a role. How did Obama, how did you get involved with the Obama administration? Um, so this great guy named, uh, named Jared Bernstein, who used to be the outreach director for the Obama administration to the Jewish community. Um, and Jared is a, is a righteous Jew who lives in Brooklyn. Um, who was uh, just a, a, an amazing person and does an, did an amazing job of outreach. And uh, one time uh, at an APAC policy conference, 
a friend of ours, Rabbi Stephen Berg, said, uh, said, you know, there's these students who would love to add, like, talk to you, and uh, would you have 10 minutes for them? So he said, yeah, and he expected it to be students, oh, what's it like to be a Jew in the White House? You know, like these kind of like uh, wiffle ball questions. He's like, come on, let's go, let's hear. And it was like, how come uh, President Obama wants to go back to 67 lines? We don't understand why would he say such a thing. You know, it was like really horrible questions. This and is Jared, like a conversation at policy conference? This is a com- conversation at policy conference um, in a corner of like uh, an area downstairs in the convention hall. And... Uh, and uh, uh, Jared was like, quite taken at how knowledgeable the students were and how challenging they were um, and invited us to the White House to meet. So that struck up a friendship between Jared and I and my students and the White House. And when Jared left, um, his replacement was a man named Matt Nussenchuk, who is also a great guy. Um, so Matt was, uh, was also uh, invited us. And then Matt's replacement, Hanan, and so on and so forth until the Trump administration took over, who are also wonderful, wonderful people. So, so this, you know... I want to kind of tie in two things that we were talking about here. Um, one of the the big kind of uh, warnings that that people who are hesitant about this or opposed to this, even in Israel, are saying is, okay, this kind of move, if we do any any kind of unilateral move, and and I think your point about the nuance, whether it's maladumim, which is a consensus uh, settlement that will by all means remain part of Israel or these kind of outlying settlements that, that even Israeli society is kind of split on. Um, it will harm our relations with the Democratic Party in America. Uh, Biden has come out and, and you know, Biden is as pro-Israel a Democrat as they get. He's got a 30-year record of being a pro-Israel Democrat. Um, it'll harm the relations with the Democrats who are starting to split on Israel. Uh, they have been for a while now. Um, it could harm the relations if Biden wins with that administration, which, which then, you know, the Dems will be in office for the next four to eight years. Um, and with 80% of American Jews who are, you know, really liberal, uh, uh, you know, and, and on these kind of issues. So what, what do you say to that kind of question? So uh, being that I, I'm close to the people that currently work on the Biden campaign and people in the Democratic Party um, who have been most active on this. Um, so I think the, the Democrats have a problem in their own house. They, uh, and, it's, and Israel's the least of, mm-hmm. of the issues. Israel hardly ever comes up. We, we as Jews imagine that like everyone's talking right. about us. Uh, you know, yeah. Between health care and Black Lives Matter and, uh, and every other coronavirus and, and President Trump who you know, breathes and can get right. the entire Democratic Party upset. So uh, and a lot of the Republican Party. So that's so when you're uh, when you're talking about the uh, the Democratic Party, they, they have a they have a split between the progressive and the liberal wings of their party. They're going to have to come to a conclusion about where that's going to go as a party. I don't think they're going to. I think they're going to constantly have a split. I don't think this is going to make an ounce of a difference in that split. I think progressives are very wary of how Israel treats um treats its Palestinians. I think that they imagine it much worse than it actually is. I think if they come out here and see it, then they would see that it's much different than they've been told. Oh, I agree. I, I totally agree. Right. So they, so they have that, that problem. I don't think whether we, we extend sovereignty, we don't extend sovereignty, I don't think it's going to matter at all. In fact, I would even go so far as to say that if we extend sovereignty and then the world sees that the Palestinian society doesn't collapse and the next day the sky hasn't fallen then they'll say, oh, wait a minute, maybe this isn't so bad, and they'll move on to a different subject. Was this like a salami approach? Inter- I don't know the salami approach. Oh, you don't know the salami the approach? No. Yeah, I don't know the salami approach either. Right. Okay, so this is a wonderful thing. Uh, I guess you can apply it to other things. Is it kosher salami? I guess it could be. The kosher yeah. salami approach. Okay. So, uh, I mean, it w- I came across this term uh, when we were studying Iran's nuclear strategy. Okay. okay. But you can apply it to other things. So, 
um, like you would slice a salami into small pieces, right? And then over time, you're only taking a small piece and a small piece and a small piece. But over yeah. time, you've you, you've cut off an entire chunk of the salami. So you know, is this or is this one of these things where like, okay, we'll, we'll do a little annexation here and a little there and a little there, and at the end of the day, we've got a big chunk of salami. Or, or you know, as we describe the Iranian nuclear program, you know, they do a little outbreak here and a little right. enrichment there, and by the end of the day, they have a military nuclear program. I, I don't, I, I don't advise doing that. I think that it would be better if we just ripped the bandaid off all at once. Um, to use a different analogy, yeah. uh, and, uh, but if, and we, if we mix those analogies, you do not want. It doesn't work, salami, right? Doesn't, so. It won't work. But I think that if we, it's I think gross. if we, sorry, I think if we go ahead and uh, and move towards uh, towards uh, mm-hmm. towards complete, um, you know, sovereignty right off the bat. I think that what the world expects is the next day to have this apartheid where Palestinians don't have money, they don't have work, they don't have anything else, and their lives become horrible. Well, I think the apartheid argument is that they won't have rights. Right, so I don't think that their day-to-day will change. Now, this, the number one question, we're, we're all doing media interviews out mm-hmm. here, right? This is like the, you know, before you guys came, there was some British TV station here. You know, so the biggest question, everybody wants to know on sovereignty, right? It's the, se- the first question is, are you for it? Second question is, what do you see as changing day-to-day? And the answer is very little changes day-to-day for us and for the Palestinians. There's going to be very, very little that changes. So once people see that, that when people say, oh, well, the Palestinians don't have voting rights, but they didn't have voting rights before, well, and they right. have voting rights in the past. In the past, so I'm saying they don't have rights. So I say they don't have Israeli voting rights. So what they didn't have before. So why are we even discussing this? So I think that people are going to realize it's a no, it's a non-story. It doesn't go anywhere. So it's going to die out very quickly. Now, because we're dragging this out, right? Menachem Begin, when he extended sovereignty to the Golan, he called in his, uh, his attorney general. Back in 1981? In yeah, nobody knew about it until it happened. Nobody knew because he called in his attorney general. He called in the head of the military and said, this is what we're doing tomorrow, right? And he didn't have a Knesset vote at first. Later on, he decided to have a Knesset vote. But he just said, he announced it the next day. Ronald Reagan went crazy. The world went crazy. And then two days later, everybody forgot about it. And that was it. That's what we should have done. There's a difference between Begin and Bibi. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a lot, it's, right. <laughs> it's a difference between Begin and Bibi, but it's also everything's covered in the media, 24-7, social right. media, alternative media sources, mainstream media sources. Right. But we should not be having this uh, these discussions, and it should not be this dragged out. It should be that we uh, that we say, you know, that's if it wasn't for Corona, by the way, we would be doing this for six months. It's just because the world was distracted by Corona, and then when Corona started getting a little less and people realized July 1st is coming, then it started uh, hyping about? up. So I want to go back to this uh, American politics thing, American Jews... Um, yeah, and you mentioned that there's a growing split. There has been for years within the Democratic Party and, and even in, in the American Jewish community, a growing split Huge regarding split. Israel. No, much bigger than the Democratic um, Party. I hear, you know, and I, I talk to groups all the time about Israel, uh, foreign groups. I talk to Israelis less, but I talk mostly to American groups. Um, and, and I often find myself also explaining America to Israelis. And I always get this um, reaction from the Israeli right that shocks me because it's just not based in any data. And, and I, as, as a former American Jew who spends a lot of my time talking to American Jews and liberal American Jews and synagogues and federations, they say they've abandoned Israel. Right, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. There's this vision of there is like a group of Orthodox Jews in America who go into the, the ballot box and they're only thinking about Israel. And the entire day they spend Israel. And then they imagine every other Jew who does not go to pray in an Orthodox synagogue and is not right wing like they are um, doesn't right. think about Israel ever. Right. You know, unless it's negative. I mean, I always explain to people, uh, okay, so the, the average, first of all, Democrat, 
um, the mainstream Democrats, let's call them. I'm not talking about the hard progressives because they're really anti-Israel. The hard, and they're a, they're a minority of the Democrats, but, but they're active and they're loud. But the average American non-Orthodox Jew and the average American Democrat are still pro-Israel. It's just not at the top of their agenda. And the way I usually explain it, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is that were there to be um, a decision point on Israel, which there just hasn't been, you know, it's just not at the top of what they're voting. They're voting on the economy. They're voting on health care. They're voting on abortion. And as they should. As they should. Country. And so long as that Israel is not an agenda item, then they don't feel the need to vote out. And then I see... Um, then I see it's Orthodox Jews in America and, and most of the right here are saying, well, Israel is not important to them. I say, no, it's, it's important to them. It's just not a priority because there's nothing to vote on. I mean, how do, how do you feel about that take? So I think that, first of all, I just want to correct one thing. I think a lot of them still do vote on Israel. Mm. Um, I think especially there are members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, Jewish members of Congress, who Israel is one of the most important things in their lives. And I like telling people that they, they're older than me, so they care a lot, about, a lot more about Israel than I do because they've been caring about it for, for longer than I have. Why, why is that? Why do they care about it yeah, so much? Yeah. Because they're Jewish and this is their homeland. They know they recognize it just mm-hmm. because they don't live here, just because they have a job as a congressperson, doesn't mean they don't care about Israel. You're talking about like Ted Deutsch. And Ted Deutsch. Okay. I'm talking about uh, well, even talk Steve to, Cohen in, in Memphis, Tennessee. You talk Tennessee. to Ted Deutsch a lot, don't you? What? You talk to Ted Deutsch a lot. I talk to Congressman Deutsch. So, yes. so I mean, what are the kind of things that come up? Uh, what, what are you talking about? What are the sentiments you're getting? Um, so we talk about we talk about Israel uh, mostly. <laughs> we talk about his children. His children were my students, um, so we both have a tremendous affinity for his students. He loves my children, so we talk about uh, talk about my children, um, and we talk about our lives. But when it comes to Israel, obviously, this is I think this is the first point we've ever disagreed on Israel, um, and we've disagree we disagree strongly um, about this about the sovereignty issue. Um, I didn't appreciate his letter. He knows that, um, and we've discussed it. Um, but uh, but he loves Israel. I mean, there's no he loves Israel just as much as I love Israel. It just people people have different viewpoints on how to express their love of Israel. It's a, it's almost like there's there are people from the Zionist Organization of America, the ZOA, which is the I would say the the counterpart to J Street, right? People yeah, like to say the, that the, APEC well, is the far right, right? The far right, right? People like to say that APEC's the counterpart to J Street. No, no, That's not, not true. Apex right, not at all. APEC's in the middle. You have J Street to the left, and you have the ZOA to the right. Right? I, so, I agree with that. Yeah. So ZOA, I look at I look at the ZOA, and I, I don't connect with a lot of the viewpoints that they have. I'm fr- I'm, I'm friends with Mark Klein, right? We were at the White House together this year for two hours talking. Yeah, we were online together, and I respect him tremendously. But there's a lot of things I disagree with him about, um, and there's a lot of things I disagree with Democrats about. But if we're all in the room together, right, and you, you somehow you could measure love of Israel, you know. Our passions would all be the same for love of Israel. We just have different visions of Israel. So it's not that Democrats don't care about Israel. It's not that they've given up about Israel. It's not that they're putting it lower on their priority list than a right-wing Jew about Israel. It's just that they have a different vision of what Israel is supposed to be, is as it, do I. Is it is it possible that a lot of the naysayers to to what you're talking about right now, what Dan and I definitely feel, you know, is, is, is their, their influence somehow by the media landscape? They're living in a world where they see things as binary, uh, they, they can't possibly wrap their head around the fact that there could be a person like you and a person like uh, Congressman Deutsch who, who, despite disagreeing on this critical issue, still could see each other equally as pro-Israel and passionate about Jewish causes. And you know, it doesn't detract in any way and make you more authentic and him less, or vice versa. And and for uh, you know, I mean, we're living in a time where it feels like, you know, it's it's just so tribal. Like if you're not this, then you're against this. Right, if you're not sure. for us, you're against us. And I and I right. and it's scary. It's it's like it's a downright ugly and disturbing thing yeah. when when I have to interact with so many people where it's like, 
okay, can I say this? Do I do that? Do I do? And it's like, no, I have to be authentically me because if I don't, then then it won't be a you, right? There won't right. be a me. Look, I I, right. I, say, I say often the same thing um, about J Street, and I find myself having to defend an organization that I really don't agree with on a lot of their issues. But I say they care about Israel, and I personally know people in J Street, and I know they care about Israel. I disagree with the way they care about Israel, but I know that they're sincere in their love for Israel, and I constantly am having to to defend. Uh, you know, it depends who I'm with, either organizations from the right or the left, where I'm trying to point out the nuance in the situation. You know, that's kind of the, the big point of our podcast is, is talking about nuance. And a lot of these issues is, is um, it's kind of missing. So how can we, um, you know, the three of us in different ways are constantly uh, interacting with American Jews and with America um, and with Israelis and kind of living, we all live on that kind of bridge and trying to to bring those communities together. So what, what are, you know, what's missing? What can we do to help Americans slash American Jews better understand what's happening here and why this isn't doomsday, why Israel isn't going in the, in the kind of scenarios they're going? And in the other direction, how do we communicate with Israelis that, guys, we, we haven't lost America, we haven't lost the Democrats, we haven't lost American Jewry. You know, there's still the relationship there. Education. You just have to educate. You just have to keep talking about it. It's the only way. Uh, what I like to do is I like to challenge people to create a list of metrics of qualifications for being pro-Israel, right? Everybody's very easy to negate somebody that they're not pro-Israel. Right. But when you ask somebody, well, what makes somebody pro-Israel? Let's list that. For me, I have a very low bar. If they, As do I. What? Yeah, As do I. If, if, As you, do I. if you want Israel to exist, you're pro-Israel. That's it. That's my, that's my bar. Or at least you're not anti-Israel. What? At least you're not anti-Israel. Right. right? So as long as you're not anti-Israel, you're pro-Israel yeah. by definition. That's the meaning sure, of the word. Sure. Right? So, and then when you challenge other people, they'll very, very quick to say, J Street's not pro-Israel. Okay, what's not pro-Israel about J Street? They can't answer the question. They can say what J Street does that's bad for Israel. Right. And I'll say, I'll, I'm the, I can't stand, I spoke to J Street. Uh, they, they had their first and only mission to, uh, to Israel a couple, uh, maybe last summer, two summers ago. And I spoke to that mission. We, we had Kenneth operated that mission. What? We had Kenneth operated that. Oh, mission. okay, great. It's great. Okay, good. So, uh, so I spoke to them. Um, and the last question that they asked was, why did you want to speak to us? And I said, listen, if you put Jeremy Ben on me, who's the head of J Street, and, and I in a room together, um, and asked us to list what we love about Israel, 90% of, the, of our opinions would be exactly the same. Right. 10% is the only is not, and then everybody highlights the 10%. Sure. I said, this trip that you're on, the only thing that makes this trip attractive to you is the 10%, not the 90%, or else you'd go with birthright, you'd go with APEC, you'd go with somebody else. You're coming for that 10%, and I wanted to come and show you that the 90%, the 90% is true. Yeah. And you said that to them in the room, and they were, yeah, yeah, and yeah. They, were they were like, okay, yeah, we get it, or were they? No, no, they're like, no, no, you're an evil person, you're a settler. <laughs> so, so when I talk to groups, I don't, I don't have, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm sure I have my own biases and where I'm coming from, but I don't speak as uh, an activist of anything. I speak as an analyst, right? Right. Um, and, and I find that I'm, you know, when I explain something kind of from a detached manner and put things in their context, I am able to reach these kind of groups. And I speak to a lot of, you know, reform synagogues and a lot of kind of more liberal groups and even non-Jews who, who are maybe coming at it with a very suspicious view of what's happening here. And, and I find that when you just explain it, put things in the context, don't try to pitch one side or the other, you, you'll see that people are a lot more understanding, a lot more willing to listen in that regard. That's great. Um, so so I'd, love, I'd love to hear some White House stories or some... Uh, uh, White House stories. Okay, know. so... Uh, uh, so, so, okay, I wrote down some because I, I'm trying to come up with a great, like, amazing White House story <laughs> that's like, uh, yeah, blows you away. So first of all, people, there's, there's two types of visits to the White House. 
Um, there's the party that you go to the White House, which is like a Hanukkah-type party or some, some other type of party. The White House throws an amazing amount of parties. Um, the president will throw 35 holiday parties in the month of December alone. Wow. Right? So I know like uh, the, the Hanukkah party is two in one day. Right? There's one from, uh, from 4 o'clock till 6 o'clock and one from... From uh, seven o'clock till nine o'clock. Is that because there are different types of Jews that won't go to the party together, or is that because no, 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 not at not all. No, but they do, they do, uh, they do separate. Unfortunately, um, they do tend to separate the Jews, but it's it, it's by organization. It's whether or not you're a donor versus a versus a professional. Got it. Right, and tickets are given out in a very strange way, um, but they're but uh, but they're, and they're amazing parties, and the White House is an incredible place. That's one type of visit. The other type of visit is a lobbying visit where you're coming on an issue and you're coming for something serious. Um, I'll only bring, and then there's, of course, there's the tour. Right. right? There's the White House tour. So I will only bring, uh, this is a good, okay, okay, I got a story. All right, so this, I'll only bring my students for a lobbying. They, my students can't get invited to the party. I can't bring, yeah, but the White House is incredibly hospitable. I brought close to 100 students into the White House um, at, at a time. And the White House is, and the Trump administration in particular, but the Obama administration also. Um, but Amanda, I'm not going to use her last name, but uh, if she ever listens to this, you should know that she's she's incredible, um, and uh, and just uh, brings brings every just always receptive to uh, to having us and having our students. So for those serious meetings, so there was, I don't know if you remember this. Um, this must be 2015. There was something I forgot what it was called, um, where they cut the budget of the federal government by 1% across the board. And then every agency to get the Republicans or the Democrats back, they took out from their budgets the part that serviced the public so that the public would be up in arms, right? They didn't cut their salaries 1%. Of course they, they cut, right. So the White House, the Obama White House, cut out the tours. So we yeah. were, we were the first tour to be cut uh, was our trip, right? Our trip was the first one that we, count, we qualified as a tour, even though we weren't going to go on a tour, even though it was a meeting. So we got on a plane on a Friday morning on the way to policy conference. We were supposed to have a meeting. Got a call right as I'm walking onto the plane. We're so sorry because of, uh, of the budget cuts. We have to cut your meeting. That sucks. Right. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. You have like 100 kids. You got to turn around to all of them and be like. No, no, no. We're, we're, right, I have to tell them that no. Yeah, right, we're not, we're not going yet. They, okay, but they're, you know, it's fine. Uh, so then, then we came back in November for a different APAC conference. There's a high school conference in November every year. And we're supposed to go to the White House. And, uh, and we're the first a group allowed back in coincidentally when the budget cuts were over we happened to be the first group allowed to come back in and they said would you like a tour they always ask if you want a tour and i always say no because i want to get the point across to my students that we're not there for a tour this isn't an experience it's lobbying for the u.s as a relationship and that's why we're doing this so a tour would take away from that so i never do the tour okay my students generally uh, some of them have been on the tour already but they generally understand that i'm you know like uh, very like yucky with this stuff i'm you know very strict and uh i'm not going to budge so they, they accept it uh turns out we go we have a, a great meeting at the white house and it's amazing great who, we come who home. are you meeting when you go to these kind of um places? so so what always happens sorry there's a um there's a um, there's an office of outreach. The Obama administration had a Jewish, as, as did the Bush administration, had a Jewish outreach person. The Trump administration, interestingly, doesn't. They have a faith outreach person, um, and they, that reaches out to all faiths. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a, uh, a Jewish person in particular. Everybody was all up in arms about it. It turns out that, that uh, Amanda, who's a Christian woman from 
from Florida is amazing to the Jewish people, and we have nothing to complain about whatsoever. So that's who you meet with, and then they get one other speaker, like one other expert that will come in. Um, so they'll send an email out to uh, 25 different people that are that are working on the issues that we're working on, Iran experts, um, Palestinian experts, whatever it is, you know, different people. And then one of them will say yes and come in and speak to us. Uh, so it could be anybody. So one time we had, like, Victoria Coates, who was at the time that the, the you know, assistant director of the National Security Agency spoke to us, which is incredible to have. Yeah, to have somebody at that level. Um, it depends. All well, depends who it is at that time. Okay, so in any case, so you're getting quickly to the story. We get back to the hotel that night, turn on the news, and because it was the first group that came in, the first group that took the tour, the Obamas themselves greeted them and talked to them. So had we said yes to the tour, we would have met the Obamas. the Obamas. My students in that group still have not forgiven me for that. So that's a uh, that's a good White House uh, White House story. So. That's, but generally, we're there lobbying, we're there meeting. Um, but when you, every time you walk into the White House, it's just an amazing moment. Um, I'll give you one last White House yeah, story because this is great. Um, so it, it, you can't see it right now, but around the corner here, you'll get it afterwards. There, I have pictures of the first. I did a favor for somebody. This is before I was like really politically active. I lived in L.A. at the time. Um, I did a favor for somebody who is very politically connected, um, a very, very big favor. And they said, what can I do for you? And I said, really nothing, it's fine. It was like something rabbinical, so it's part of my duties, no big deal. And he said, okay, dream now. What would you want? I said, my dream, dream would be a, pro- I love the White House, love everything about the White House, everything about the American presidency. You can see I have stuff all over. I said, uh, I would love a private tour of the West Wing. It's like asking somebody for like. Dude, you were a West Wing fan, weren't you? Oh, I've, uh, yes, show. I've I watched show. every I'm show. Like at religiously, least, uh, yeah. my wife is totally. She's listening. To this she's she gets pissed off because I will watch West Wing reruns. Like the same episode every. I'll watch a, a season, or I'll watch the show, and then I'll go back and okay, start so you over. See the, you see and the over. she's like, she's like, Benny, how do you watch the same show uh, again? Yeah, like, you, you just don't you understand. Never, you watch it all They've over, never over, made a TV yeah. show like it. It's yeah, not. So I, I have a picture there sitting at the Oval Office that's from the West Wing set because one of my friends works in Hollywood. The writing was incredible. The what? The writing on that. Oh, show. it's amazing! Oh, amazing. Incredible. First yeah. five seasons. He doesn't know. Okay, so, so the uh, yeah, the first Aaron exactly. Sorkin the first five seasons. He knows. He knows what I'm talking about. So the okay, so so the. Uh, so, so I said, it's a private tour of the West Wing. So yeah, I threw it out there because like, what are the chances, right. you know? So, uh, so I get a call. A trip um, to the moon. Yeah. What? A trip to the moon. Right, right. 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 So, like, a private tour of the West Wing. I get a call two weeks later from the White House uh, saying, we have a private tour for you and two friends. Wait, so wait, but I, I got to take you back. You're sitting at home. You get a call. They're like, I'm in Beverly Hills. Yeah, in LA. Um, hi, this is uh, so-and-so from the White House. Um, we have you scheduled for a tour. On you think it's a real call? Yes, yeah. So we talk about Michael Jordan's called my house. So yeah, so it's oh, like we, a, we're going to talk about that. Right, so, uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, so <laughs> so uh, so the, it's so, so from the White House. We have a tour. For, we have a tour scheduled for you of the West Wing on Thursday, whatever it is a Thursday at seven p.m. Uh, for you and two friends. Please be here at that time. And we need your. We need to do a background check. So if you can send uh, some personal information in, and thank you. So uh, like, I got to get plane tickets now. To a play? Yeah, that's the, I was not worried. Plane tickets is amazing. <laughs> yeah. plane tickets. I walk, you know, like this is like the greatest moment of my life at the time. First time in the White House. Who would ever go to the White House? Right, you know, like right, a private right. tour of the West Wing. I would have been happy to go on the front lawn and walk around the front lawn. <laughs> you know, um, so so I took my friend, Remy Berg, Steve Berg, who's also a White House nut. 
Um, I'd also never been to the White House, so also a big West Wing fan. This is like you know something they were dreaming about our whole lives. Um, we he lived in New Jersey at the time, so I flew to to New Jersey. We rented a convertible. We were going to do this right, That's so we went to a kosher <laughs> went to a kosher restaurant, got two buckets of chicken and uh, two buckets of fried chicken, in the ate it down in the convertible down the drive from Jersey to uh, to Washington. Pick up a a friend of ours, Melinda, and that was in Oklahoma. More chicken. What? And more chicken. And what, you know, so we, we, I pulled into a lot, you know, changed into suits because, you know, we were wearing suits in the ride down. Uh, we go to the White House and we're walking around the way, private tour of the West Wing. The president happened to be, was President Bush. He happened to be in Israel at the time. It's much better if you're ever going to get one of these tours. Always book the tour when the president's not there. Right, because the security is nothing, right? right, right. right. Yeah. They're like, anybody can come yeah, in. Yeah, you yeah, go yeah. run into the White House, you know, it's no problem. So you can, uh, so it's much better. So you can go different places. And we're walking through and I said, I want to see what the bathrooms look like. Now, so I said to the guy, I said, excuse me, I'm sorry, I have to use the restroom. So he says, you, you have a half an hour in the West Wing. You're going to go to the bathroom? I said, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so, you want to know. Of course. <laughs> you want to yeah, know. Yeah. What else am I going to do? Yeah. So he said, so, and then, and then Ray Berg and Melinda said, yo, we also have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. So, also, I'm ready to go to the bathroom. So, the bathroom. so I'm in the bathroom and I'm looking around for something I could take with me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, uh, so there's only toilet paper. Toilet paper is regular toilet paper. Is it's it not presidential like, toilet so paper. So it's not president. It doesn't have the like seal on it. Nothing. Quadruple so, ply. So I take, yes, I take like two or three pieces of the toilet paper. You know, stick it into my pocket. That's going to be my souvenir from the White House. Save this toilet paper right, all yeah, the days awesome, of my sure. life. So we get out of the White House after our tour. Everything's fine. And uh, and we're staying there. And I said, guys, you're never going to believe this. Look what I took. So I take out the three pieces. And right, Berg takes out from his pocket the roll. And he goes, <laughs> I took the roll. I took the roll. I got you as a gift. So I used to have the roll of toilet paper here. And then one of my guests, I guess we ran out of toilet they paper. Used they used it. Oh, they used it. <laughs> so, no okay, that's a good White House story. Was it triple ply? Um, I don't remember. It was the Bush administration, ply. so it was at the end, so it was like the economy this was is good. Toilet going. paper. Wait, is, okay. Yeah. So this, this you told me this story a couple weeks ago. This is uh, to reference the book, The Lonely Man of Faith by uh, Soloveitchik. You got to tell the Michael Jordan story. Uh, okay, so we, the whole thing? Well, no, no. Okay, so we were talking. We were, we were both, well, I watched the documentary on Michael Jordan. If you haven't seen it, seriously, stop what you're doing. Go watch it. Or it, you know you need to watch it, right? Yeah, one day I'll watch it. You need to watch this documentary. And we were arguing online about who's who was a bigger Michael Jordan fan. So I I have to admit, I got put in my place. We'll, we'll jump to the story about how you won the fan club. All right, so the, Nike had a fan club called the, uh, the, Air, the Air Jordan Flight Club, um, which was uh, essentially for 15-year-olds, which I was a 15-year-old at the time, so it was age-appropriate. And, uh, and they had a contest who was the biggest Michael Jordan fan in the country, and I placed third. So, uh, so I was the third biggest Michael Jordan fan in the country. Uh, Dan is didn't even place. I did not so, place. Right, I only had three place. posters. Right, you're so an amateur fan. Amateur. Right. Nothing. 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 Not yeah, even a so. real fan. But uh, yeah. So that's uh, so that was a, And then uh, I had a friend who worked for Nike. Um, his name is Ryan Moreland. He was and she now works for Adidas. Actually, I don't know where he works now. We've lost touch, unfortunately. He's probably not going to listen to this podcast. No, I doubt. <laughs> that, uh, so. No. Right, so I cannot imagine that would ever happen. But a great guy, Ryan was a great guy. He did a lot of favors for me. And on Yom Kippur night, Michael Jordan walked through um, his office and he said, "You know, I got a friend, uh, this kid in New Jersey, who would just die to speak to you. Could you hold on for one second? We'll call him up and just say hello to him." And Michael Jordan very graciously said, "Sure." He handed him the phone, got my answering machine because it was Yom Kippur night. 
Um, this was the times when uh, that people. Some I hope everybody in this on this podcast is old enough to remember this. But we answering machines where you could hear the person's voice. You know, uh, you know, Yuri, it's Michael Jordan, and uh, on the phone. You know, and then my friend Ryan getting on the phone, like Yuri, pick up the phone, pick up the phone. <laughs> Hi, yeah, and uh, and for, those, yeah. for those who are unfamiliar, Yom Kippur is the holiest of the holy days, and those who are observant won't answer the phone. Even if it's Michael so Jordan. you're 15 years <laughs> old, you're sitting in your basement. I'm just, it's maybe not in your basement, but right. like in my head, it's in your, you're in your basement. No one's around. No one sees you. And the answer machine, you, deep. Uh, you're, this is Michael Jordan. Please right. pick up the phone. So and you're like, you, I'll, t- I'll tell you, you an didn't amazing, pick up the phone. Come I'll on. tell you an amazing story, which I, don't, I, usually, I usually tell my students a story. It's a great, great story. I grew up in a place called Fairlawn, New Jersey. It's a small town, which had, uh, had a rabbi and a, and a rabbi who retired this year, Rabbi Yudin, who's an amazing, amazing person. Just absolutely amazing. And uh, Yom Kippur is the rabbi's biggest speech of the year. The Yom Kippur night speech is the biggest sermon that they're going to give the whole year. Um, and it's generally aimed at a way of raising funds because there's usually a Yom Kippur appeal that generally comes right after that speech. And w- in my senior year of high school, I was a modern Orthodox Jew growing up. I was always religious. This was, you know, that's, that's how I grew up. I always kept kosher. This is not, not, I didn't have any like, uh, you know, back and forth. Um, but I wasn't passionate about my Judaism. And uh, this was right after Ma- uh, Magic Johnson got AIDS and Michael Jordan was accused of gambling and Pete Rose and all these things. Well, he and gambled. He wasn't accused of gambling. What? He gambled. He was a gambler. He's okay, you know, like, uh, you know, well, there's no court him. case. Okay. So, uh, That's not a crime. Yeah. So, so the, uh, so this is, in any case, there were a lot of people that were being accused of immoral behavior okay. that were athletes. And remember, you didn't, um, usually the you know, Kipper speech, the teenagers would leave the room. Right, because we don't want to sit through a forty-minute speech. Rabbi Yudin, right before his speech, my senior year, got up and said, uh, "I've asked the teenagers to stay. This year's speech, I apologize to the adults, is going to be aimed at the teenagers." And uh, I had sixty-eight Michael Jordan posters hung up in my room. <laughs> and Rabbi Yudin said, uh, "He's turned to the teenagers and he said, when you look up at your at the posters in your room, you shouldn't have to ask yourself guilty or innocent.'" And that year, when Yom Kippur was over, I ran home, and before I broke my fast, I ripped down every single you one of those not. posters. Every single one, and I didn't sell them, I didn't try, you know, save them, I threw them all out in the garbage. Oh. And that turned my life around that speech. That's where I started becoming passionate about my Judaism, and, uh, and started realizing that he's right, that, that, that who are my role models? Those should not be my role models. So does that mean I can take back the mantle of biggest people? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know, we called you right. a pro fan, man, that's... Right, there's a law you that if you trade. regret doing a mitzvah, so then the mitzvah doesn't count. There so then go. it could be if I regret right. being a Michael Jordan fan, so then I... Uh, I'm the biggest fan again. My three posters were... <laughs> right. So, uh, yeah. So that's the Michael Jordan story. So uh, I, w- I want to wrap this up. Uh, we walked in here. You were studying... Uh, what were you studying? Some Gemara? Uh, when you walked in, I happened to be studying something called Masil Yishar and the Path of the Just, which oh. is over there, which I started studying for the start of Corona. Um, it's a it's a book I haven't really looked at since I was twenty, and I realized at the start of Corona I should really look at it again. So I started studying it again. So that's what I happened to be looking at, um, and uh, his lessons on uh, on how we should look at mitzvot as a way of of you know not in a minimalist fashion, but how much can I do, not how much do I have to do. So this is of course a Jewish theme podcast. You are a rabbi. So maybe uh, let's part with some uh, words of Torah if you want to impart us with anything. Uh, so I'll tell you something amazing that I'm, I'm hooked on. Um, I'm hooked on this Dvar Torah. Everybody that's asked me for Dvar Torah last couple of last couple of weeks have had to tell them this one because I'm absolutely, absolutely hooked on it. I'm gonna, it takes, it's going to take me three minutes to say it. But it. it's an absolute amazing Dvar Torah that will, sh- even if you're a beginner at Torah, don't even know what the word Torah means, this will, this will amaze you. Um, there's a person in the Bible named Og, O-G, Og. Okay, so Og was a giant of a man. 
And uh, Og is first listed before the flood, before Noah's flood, and supposedly by our rabbinic literature tells us that he hung on to the ark and, uh, and survived the flood somehow. And then uh, at the war, there was a war between four or five kings. Um, Abraham had a nephew who had separated from him and had moved down 45 minutes south of here, um, south of the Dead Sea, to a place called Sodom. And he happened to be captured in this war. And it says that a refugee of the war came and told Abraham that his nephew Lot had been had been kidnapped. Right. Okay. And uh, and he said, okay, uh, he said you should go save him. That refugee, our rabbinic literature says, was Og again. Okay, it was the same Og who had somehow uh, lived this long. And uh, I told Avram that you should save your nephew Lot. And the rabbis say that Og was going to be rewarded for having told Avram that his nephew was saved, but also punished. Why was he going to be punished? Because the reason why he told Abraham that his nephew had been having kidnapped was he was hoping that he would go into battle to save him, die, and he would be able to marry Avram's beautiful wife, Sarah. Mm. So he was going to be, he was going to be rewarded with a very long life and punished by being killed by none other than Moshe. So what happens? The Jews, let's fast forward 500 years, okay? The Jews come out of their, their slavery in Egypt. They're coming up south from, uh, from Saudi Arabia, up through Jordan to Israel, to this area right here, right across from us. And they, they pass by the coastline of the, uh, of the Dead Sea. They avoid the Dead Sea. They avoid the, what the, in the Bible is called the Salt Sea, the Yavimelech. They pass by it and avoid the king of the area, who is none other than oh. our Og. Og is the king, and they completely bypass him because there's no reason. He's living south of the Dead Sea, and they stop right across from Jericho right here in what today would be Amman. And they stop at Amman and ask the king, whose name is Sichon, if they can travel through. And they say, the path of the king we will follow. You tell us where to go. We'll go. Not only that, we'll support your economy. We'll buy from you. And for some reason, he says, no, I'm going to war with you. The Jews defeat him. They take over his land. A king to the north of them, who had no reason to attack Balak, decides to also go to war with them. Okay? Fine. He got scared. Og, for some unseen reason, decides that he's going to travel from the south and meet the Jews up here and go to war with them. It makes no sense. The Jews were not going to travel south. They were traveling west into the land of Israel, crossing the Jordan River. So why would Og want to go to war? What was Og's punishment? His punishment was long life. It seems strange because if you look through, whether it's the Egyptians or you look through anybody else, what was the punishment that, the, that our enemies always suffered? They were wiped out. Right, right? They were wiped out. So uh, Og, all of a sudden, his punishment is that he's going to live, right? For, what's the, so the Cheskuni, who's a scholar from the 13th century, he has this amazing explanation. He says, yes, it's true. God does punish sometimes by wiping you out. But sometimes he punishes by having you watch your enemy succeed. So he said, Og had to watch as the Jewish people came out. Imagine Og, I tried to kill Avram. It didn't work, right? So, but then he, but the Jews are enslaved. Okay, good. I'm, I'm, the, I'm victorious. I became a king. I lived for hundreds of years. Then he watches the Jews defeat the world superpower, the Egyptians, and come up. He couldn't handle it. So he went to war against the Jewish people, right? But now here's the amazing thing. Look at today. Right? If we were looking at Jewish history and everybody likes to put a messianic twist on, on the people of Israel today and the state of Israel. And so what should happen? Our enemies attacked us in, in 48 and 67 and 73 and hundreds of times in between. So what should happen to them? There should not be an Egypt today. There should not be a Lebanon. There shouldn't be a Syria. There shouldn't be a Jordan. All of these places shouldn't exist anymore. Our enemies should have been wiped out. But if you take the Cheskuni's idea that sometimes God punishes by making you watch your people succeed, in the same exact area that Og lived, the Jordanian peasants are living today. And they're watching. They remember they went to war against us, and they lost. And what are they watching? They're watching us succeed. 
when they have to force while they live in poverty. Unfortunately, I don't want them to live in poverty, but that's what's happening. They're living in poverty and watching the state of Israel and the Jewish people thrive. An amazing, amazing thought. Unbelievable. Very interesting. Rabbi Uri Pilachowski, the Pilachowski Palace, we recommend uh, if you want an interesting take from an interesting and original thinker, uh, if when we're allowed to travel again, you know, come out here to, to the Pilachowski Palace. Thank sure. you so much for being on our show. For Thank sharing. you for having well, me. Bef- and, uh, before we go, tell us what you're working on. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. Uh, so you can get in touch with me through through Facebook or through Twitter is probably the easiest. I'm Rational Settler on, uh, on, on Twitter. Not The Rational, just Rational Settler on Twitter, although I can't imagine there's a The Rational Settler. So I imagine any search algorithm will pop up. And I'm the only Uri Pilachowski in the world. So if you search for uh, Uri Pilachowski on Facebook, you'll find me as well. Awesome. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you for having me. And you guys should have a better guest than me from going on forward <laughs> and really have a lot of success. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Take care. So thank you again to our first guest, Rabbi Uri Pilachowski. It was awesome uh, interviewing today, and uh, we appreciate you sharing uh, from your insights and your wisdom and your and your vision because uh, I, think, I think that's important too. Awesome. And uh, this is Benny Shoulder. Dan Pfefferman. And thank you for listening to today's episode of Juance. We look forward to seeing you here again real soon. This episode of Juanced was recorded live in Mitzvah Yericho. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman and is produced by Ben Truman. If you liked what you heard, we invite you to subscribe to become a regular listener. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to have you back for the next episode of Juanced, coming soon. Juanced.